After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. Actor, director and broadcaster Gordon Kennedy came to national prominence in 1994 when he launched the National Lottery alongside Noel Edmonds and Anthea Turner. A string of presenting duties followed, including teaming up with Cheryl Baker for the current affairs series The Eleventh Hour, before he returned to the world of acting in 2006 for the BBC One early evening drama Robin Hood. I caught up with the TV star ahead of the anticipated return of Absolutely on BBC Radio 4 to talk drama, broadcasting and memorable Saturday nights. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Gordon Kennedy. So is it true that one of your first TV appearances was on the Kenny Everett show? Uh, yes, it was. I, I, I think I might have done the Russ Abbott show first, but I, I come down from Edinburgh where we used to do a show on the Fringe and I got an agent and uh, I, I, I kind of wanted to get into acting as well. And so uh, my agent was putting up for various jobs, Russ Abbott being one of them. And then I, I think I did a, maybe two days filming on the Kenny Everett show. <clears throat> And what was fantastic was that the, one of the sketches I was uh, I had to fire a Browning machine gun back in the days when firing a Browning machine gun was considered funny, <laughs> and um, they uh, they had to set it up so it was quite technical, and so um, I we had a couple of hours when I just spent chatting to him and I didn't know him, um, but he was so lovely and he sort of asked me into his his, his caravan and we we chatted for two hours about just comedy and all that stuff and it was fantastic and he was such a, a innovative a comedian but but also very mainstream because of his radio audience and because he you know the stuff the stuff but the stuff he was doing on the BBC one in his sketch show was sort of really out there mm. compared to a lot of the stuff that was going on at the time so I you know I, I really enjoyed working with him and I, it was just great fun to, to, to chat to him it was one of those uh, it's one of those moments you sort of treasure. Yeah. Now imagine this was one. Uh, this was a very unique introduction to the world of entertainment. So, what were you able to glean from this experience? Uh, basically, be nice to people. I mean, he he was this massive star. He didn't have to talk to me, but I, I, I was chatting to him, and we're having a coffee. And he said, "Well, come and we're not doing anything just now. Let's go and have a chat." And so, you know, I was able to go into his his, his Winnebago, whatever it was, and we had a you know we were there for a couple of hours just chatting about comedy and, and you know for somebody's young coming into the business it was a fantastic sort of insight into him and mm. how his how his comedy brain worked which is not not similar to me at all but it but that doesn't mean to say he couldn't admire it now there's many correlations between your yours and Everett's career now I'm thinking radio now you're just about to launch the brand new show absolutely yeah uh, what can we expect from that uh, uh, well, um, some new characters, uh, as you probably know, absolutely is, is uh, 
a lot of characters. There, mm. there are ones from the old show like Little Girl and Callum Gilhooly and Stony Bridge Town Council. But we have new characters as well, um, and just one-off sketches. So lots of new stuff and some really funny musical stuff this time. Um, Pete, who does our music, is in very good form. So um, yeah, so some of the some some characters you'll know, and lots of new stuff. Oh, interesting. And it's sorry, and it starts on Sunday the seventh at seven fifteen. Uh, on Radio 4 after the Archer's Omnibus Brilliant. Which, is, which is one of the weirdest transformations in radio <laughs> uh, now the original sketch show that was on Channel 4 yeah. uh, in what ways was this a springboard to the rest of your career it was in, in every way entirely um, because we were we were kind of given the keys to, to the box it first off and it was very unusual because we wrote the show we acted in the show it was our production company making the show and they kind of let us do it mm. which is almost unheard of and Channel 4 were, were very good about that and they, 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 they respected that what we were doing was all about us and what we found funny and it wasn't any more it was as specific as that mm. but they kind of banked on that going down well with the audience which it did thankfully um, and so they, they let us do that I think these days it's almost it would be very difficult to do that yeah. because I think there's an awful lot of control from above and they don't necessarily give you that creative freedom but we had it and so you know we stood or fell by it but actually it went very well so it set us up very nicely Josh just asked uh, do you think when Channel 4 came in it gave people like you a lot more opportunities to do what you wanted entirely if Channel 4 hadn't existed we wouldn't have been able to do the show um, it was uh, because uh, BBC had a show called Naked Video at the time which was Scottish based so the idea that we would have got, had a shout at the BBC just wouldn't have happened because they were very successful, mm. they were very good, they had people like Gregor Fisher in it, it just wouldn't have happened. So Channel 4 was really important for that. And also the fact that Channel 4, from the outset, wanted to do, wanted to do things differently and wanted to do different things. So our show being kind of very out there, slightly weird, character-driven, not being derivative of anything that that had just been happening it was more really almost harking back to pythons and stuff like that so um, that that was very important for them as well and I think that's what made them commission the show was because it wasn't like anything else out there because we'd sort of arrived there by default not by going to Oxford or Cambridge mm. or um, or or doing you know seaside shows you know that 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 way around the variety route we'd sort of arrived because we all lived in Edinburgh and we did a show in the fringe which is quite a weird way to go so they almost by definition we would be different if they left us alone which they did mm. bless them it's almost a more organic kind completely, of way yeah, yeah completely and and completely you know in a sense a very narrow kind of starting point but that makes it very specific which is what makes it very appealing mm. he guesses that in that in that era you had a, a lot of little groups of people that were rebelling against the, that showbiz establishment yeah well yes but but more importantly the political establishment I mean it was it was sort of towards the end of Thatcherism and so actually a lot of the comedy at that time was very satirical so there was stuff mm. like spitting image that was the biggest comedy show in television at the time, and not the Nine O'Clock News, which was all satirical. It was all about politics, and Ben Elton and people like that were. And the the comedy on the circuit was almost all satire. And then we came in with sort of from Edinburgh and Morwenna from Cornwall and John from Wales, uh, and just did silly stuff. 
and uh, and everyone's going, that's quite good because there wasn't an mm. awful lot of it about. Yeah. And so that was why, again, I think that's partly why Channel Four thought this was a because it was sort of a, the wrong direction that made it the right direction for them. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Good. And in 1994, you joined Thought Forces with Anthea Turner to launch the National Lottery Live. What sort of responsibility did you feel over such a national event? I, funnily enough, I think actually now, I think I was quite naive about it. I didn't realise quite how big a show it was. I mean, I'll tell you the truth. I was, I, I went to meet these people at the BBC and they couldn't tell me what the meeting was about because it was all very hush-hush at the time because nobody knew that the BBC had won it. Uh, and I was at this meeting and we were chatting away about this thing called the National Lottery that I knew nothing about, but me being me, I pretended I knew everything about it. Um, and, and I said, well, that's all very good, but anyway, what, 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 did, you want to, what did you want to see me about? <laughs> and they said, no, 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 we want, we want you to do the show with us. And I, and I just la- I laughed at them. I literally just thought this, it was the best punchline to the show. I just, you got, what? Why would, I, why would you want me to do it? And I just, so I laughed. And anyway, I said, well, that's very interesting, but I'll think about it. And then I turned the job down three times and then eventually did it. So I sort of, I didn't really understand that side of television because I'd only done Channel 4 and a bit of comedy on the BBC. And it was only when we were taken along to the launch and literally there was like 70 journalists in a room. It was like one of those proper media scrums, all flashing cameras. Mm. And they knew Anthea Turner. They did not have a Scooby who I was at all. And they were just going, who, who are you? They were sort of <laughs> shouting, pointing a microphone, who, who the hell are you? What are you? you know, anyway. Mm. Uh, and at that point, I got relatively frightened about it because I thought, well, this is going to change my life for a while, which it did. Because the press scrutiny on the television show was extraordinary, especially at the start, because, because it was such a national pastime, they couldn't really they couldn't really have an opinion about the National Lottery because everyone was wanting to play it, but they could definitely have opinions about the television show, which they did. So there was an awful lot of firefighting of tabloids kind of slagging us off or wanting it interviews or wanting to know yeah. the secrets of it to start with. And actually it was an amazing experience to go through because I'd never done it before. So having that amount of media scrutiny taught me a lot of lessons about how you, how you do things like that. And to a certain extent, it didn't matter because it wasn't about me. It was about the show that I was just presenting. So, mm. so it was a good, good training. But um, yeah, but it was, it was, um, it was pretty wild. And as I, as I, as I was saying, I mean, the, you forget how many people watched that program. You know, there was there was the times when it was 22, 23 million people were watching yeah. that show on a Saturday night, which is sort of extraordinary. It's mad, people. yeah. Um, so. You know, it, it, it was it was important for all those things, but it, it you know, it, it, in the end of the day, it, it was kind of a results program. It wasn't it wasn't a, you know it wasn't a, wasn't a show that was and, and and showing people the good works that the money was going to. Um, so it was in a sense, it was quite a simple show to do. So, but but very but the size of it and the and the interest in it was extraordinary. Yeah. Well, then you and Anthea took the reins of the show and introduced segments like uh, Mystic Meg, Carol Vorderman's Mathematics, uh, together with musical acts. Now, as a presenter, how difficult is it to preside over these different elements on a live show? Um, it's not. I mean, a live show, 
and this will work on a podcast, but it's a little bit like doing that. You know, that it's a coordination exercise because you're talking, people are talking in your ear and you're also thinking about what's coming up next. <laughs> and there is no substitute to practice for that. That's the only way you can do it and get any get any good at it. Whether, whether I did or not is for other people to judge. But um, the, the, so those segments were fun and, and it was such a short show that they were very defined. And actually, it was it, it, in a way, it was slightly someone else's problem because they, they knew what they were going to do. They knew how long it was. And actually, when they were on, we had a little breather so you could just compose your thoughts. So, you know, it wasn't too bad. But, I, but funny enough, I, I, Mystic Meg was very funny. I liked her she, a lot. She was, um, she was very funny. Out of Mystic Meg character because she lived quite near me. So we occasionally shared cars home and stuff like that. <laughs> and she wrote kids' books um, about a cat that played for a football team. So she was... She was um, Something you wouldn't expect. <laughs> no, 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 no. And I d- she didn't write them as Misty Meg. I think she just wrote them under her own name. But she was she was really lovely. I haven't, but I haven't seen her since. But anyway, there we are. Well, staying with live TV, in 1996, you teamed up with Cheryl Baker for the Sunday morning show, The 11th Hour. Yeah. Just tell us about the premise of the show and any fond memories you have working on it. Okay, so the premise of the show, The 11th Hour, I'm still not entirely sure what it was. <laughs> and I did it for two series. Um, but basically, it was about adults and pastimes and hobbies and sort of small businesses and we had a lot of films that would come in but it was it was made by the BBC education department which is quite a powerful part of the BBC so there must have been an educational aspect to it mm. I, I, most of the time it was lost on me and I'm not sure I was particularly in charge of that show I was a better <laughs> presenter but but it did it was amazing and the the the, the, the my my favorite item in the whole thing was this French guy we got in who who worked with people who couldn't swim and had a, who had a fear of water, and uh, and we did it at, at Television Centre and he built he built a swimming pool in the studio which is sort of the mad things that these people did they didn't seem to have a budget worrying about it so they put in this big swimming pool they collected a bunch of people together who had a fear of water uh, one guy in particular I remember who couldn't have a shower I mean he could sit in a bath but he couldn't have a shower. So much was his fear of this this water going over his head, and then we sprung a surprise on a floor manager who worked on the show that we know we knew had a fear of water and couldn't swim. So in the live show, we got her to come and be one of the volunteers, and then someone else came in and was the floor manager, and it was extraordinary. In an hour's worth of television, I mean, this guy uses sort of glass bowls of water and ping pong balls I can't really describe why but he basically gets people to understand that if they blow bubbles out of their mouth when they're underwater they're not going to drown that's as simple as it can get but in an hour all of them were doing this glide underwater in in this little pond including the floor manager and then the next week we did a follow up film and they went to a swimming pool (laughs) and they were all literally they were all swimming and enjoying the water and the guy this guy the week before couldn't get in a shower so that was a fantastic thing to see that in an hour of television you could fundamentally change one aspect of all yeah. these people's lives. That was a brilliant thing mm-hmm. to do. So that was certainly one of the things we did. But whether it was... Um, but I still don't really know what the premise of the show was. But it was basic. It was made by people that didn't actually normally make tele- live television or in, maybe some of them didn't even know how to make... So all the rules of live television were broken on a regular occurrence. So sometimes they'd just have a camera and nobody would be there because the <laughs> presenter was the other side of the studio and you'd have to run into the place. And it was, it was 
it had a lovely, slightly shambolic feel to it, which was like a lot of the films, which mm. is all about people making candles and beeswax and stuff. So <laughs> it just it just felt like it was teetering on the brink of it. it was, all the screens were going to go blank any minute, and that was great fun. I mean that because because it, it was on a Sunday morning, so it pro- probably didn't matter if they, yeah. did, if they did go blank, but it was great fun. Now, returning to acting, yeah. in 2006 you were cast as Little John in the BBC One adaptation of Robin Hood, which was a part of the reinvigorated Saturday Night lineup, which included Strictly Come Dancing. Now, why do you think it was short-lived? Um, I, I, it wasn't too... I mean, we did three and a half years of it. Um, it you know, it, it was also... It, it was out on the same slot as Doctor Who, and Doctor Who is, is you know, a massive sort of... Uh, you know, juggernaut compared to we we were just starting, um, but I think part of the pro- part of the problem it wasn't a problem. Part of the good thing about the show is it slewed itself slightly older than the core Doctor Who audience to sort of young youngish teenagers and especially boys, which television really doesn't still doesn't really cater for particularly, um, and uh, and I think it, so. Part of it was that that it wasn't quite hitting the audience mark that Doctor Who did. And also, it was um, political because we made it in in Budapest, and the producers were called into a select committee at the Houses of Parliament to explain this, which was extraordinary. Because at the time, we couldn't have made it anywhere else because they had the sets, uh, the exchange rate meant we got much more, you know, bang for a buck than you would have done doing it in the UK. And also, it was a centre of right at the cutting edge of CGI special effects that we could afford. We couldn't have afforded to do them in the UK. Um, so then we were going to have to bring the show back to the UK we would have had to change it they did change the idea of it and then they just said no we just don't want it and it sort of was the start of the end because there was Maryland was for a few years and then sorry, I think Atlantis went for a year a season and then all those other shows sort of died off and strictly amazing show that it is sort of grew into the slot along with Doctor Who but at the time there could have almost been a year's worth of shows with Doctor Who, Robin Hood, Merlin, those shows, if they'd all gone one after the other, we would have had, and I think that, obviously as an actor, I would have much preferred that to just Strictly Come Dancing. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with Strictly Come Dancing, but I just, uh, that would have been fantastic. And uh, how excited are you to be bringing Absolutely back to the radio? Fantastic. I mean, this is, this is our third series, but it, it all started in 2014 when we got asked to do it. And basically all they wanted was some old television sketches that would work on radio and for us just to perform them live. Uh, and I didn't think the rest of the guys would agree to do it, but they did, apart from one chap who was very busy doing something else. So uh, that was fine. But with his blessing, the, the five of us took it on to radio. But then when we met to talk about the sketches we were going to do, I said, you know, we can't do Stony Bridge without mentioning the fact that the London Olympics were like 18 months ago and uh, it would be a very large elephant in the room. So so somebody said, well, we'll write a sketch about Stony Bridge not getting the Olympics, mm-hmm. which we did, which is very funny. So they were all up and up and saying so it was terrible that London got on what a terrible job they'd made of it. <laughs> um, but then all the other characters that we have you know, it was almost like the, the ventriloquist dummy sort of, you know, knocking, knocking yeah. on the keys, let me out, you know, because they hadn't spoken for 20 years. So so we thought we'd better write some new stuff for them too. So suddenly we had all this material that we got and we eventually we edited all the new stuff into, into a separate show that won a BBC Audio Drama Award and then we got then we got commissioned to do a radio series. So the third one is this one that's going out on, starts going out on Sunday at uh, 7.15. Fantastic. Um... 
Now, looking back at your career, what is your proudest achievement? Oh, blimey. I, I don't... I, I think I've been very lucky, actually. That's the point. I mean, I think I've, I've been lucky to know the people I did at school so that we went on the Edinburgh Fringe and we became part of Absolutely, the sketch show. Um, and then, you know, and that, that, it's funny to think about it, but at that time it was really quite difficult to be an actor and do comedy. They, they weren't really, the, the, the movement, you know, Hugh Laurie going off to do House and all that, that, that was years away. So people sort of put you in a compartment and I really rebel, I really pushed my agent to go against that. So that, uh, and eventually, I thought I'd made it because I got a job in Inspector Morse. I did an Inspector Morse episode. Mm. Um, and I auditioned for the part and it was great and it was all fine. And then uh, I got the script and they'd cut all the dialogue that my part had in the show. And so my agent said, look, you don't mm. have to do this. And I said, no, I want to do it. I want to do it because I, I just want to see how I've done Inspector yeah. Morse. Because then it looks like I'm not just a comedy actor or whatever. So I did it, and it, it was hilarious. And the director was really nice, and he said, oh, I'm really sorry you don't have any dialogue anymore, and it was all fine. So we did it. And then, um, and then you know, I did a few other things. We had the sideline into presenting, and then I was very lucky to, I got, uh, somebody I knew was casting this show called Glasgow Kiss with Ian Glenn, who was in mm -hmm. uh, Game of Thrones recently. And uh, it was set in Glasgow, and uh, they auditioned me much against the, the rest of them all going, well, he'd be, why? He's not an actor, he does all comedy stuff. And that's sort of the prejudices you were sort of against. But I did the audition and I got the part. And then, I, I, the landscape was changing then as well. And then it was easier to get other stuff, so stuff like Red Cat with Tams and Outhwaite and, and obviously Robin Hood and things like that. And most recently, Harlots. Harlots is the new series. That's coming out in about three weeks' time. Uh, it goes out in a very strange channel called Stars... Stars something on on Amazon Prime, but that's with Samantha Morton and uh, Leslie Manville, and it's about prostitution in London in the 1760s. So they've done two series, and I'm in the first half of the third series. That's very exciting. What are you? What's it? What are you? Who do you play? Oh, who do I play? I play a gunmaker, quite a posh English gunmaker, in uh, who has a shop in Greek Street. Um, and he, uh, yeah, so he takes up with a young prostitute and uh, he's, he's obviously very happy because he's taken up with a young prostitute and the young prostitute wants to learn about business from him because she's got plans. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's we'll look out for that on Amazon Prime. Then, yeah, well. yeah. So you'll see it. If you go into Amazon Prime, you'll see Harlots, but then you, I think you have to pay like three quid or something. to start. Stars Play, it's called. S-T-A-R-Z. Mm -hmm. And then Play. Uh, it's one of these weird channels. But anyway, it used to be on ITV Encore, which was easy, but this is that no longer exists. So that's where it's on. Well, finally, yeah. what, what is next for Gordon Kennedy? Well, that, uh, that, that Harlots, which is just uh, coming out now, um, and um, uh, quite a lot of radio production. I'm, I, I don't have any other acting jobs at the moment, um, but we're doing another series of Alone, which is a sitcom we do with Angus Deaton. We're recording that uh, towards the end of the year. Quanderhorn, which is a science fiction sitcom I do with Rob Grant, who was part of Red Dwarf, started Red Dwarf off. Um, uh, we'll do that and uh, another series of The Break which is the one with Ian Brown and James Hendry so that's the radio production is spaced out so hopefully yeah. I'll get some I'll get some acting work as well playing a bit of cricket as well. playing a bit of cricket playing a bit of cricket <laughs>
Thank you very much to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.